by looking at our uh, classic Sunday school stories. As we did last week, we'll begin studying or, or examining our New Testament stories, stories that teach us about God in the New Testament. So would you bow your heads with me this morning as we prepare to hear from our Lord today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in this church and what you are doing in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to prepare our hearts, continue to prepare our minds, Lord, for the receiving of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would cast away any distractions, any things that would keep us from listening to you, Lord. I pray that these would not be my own words, but your words, and that you would prepare me to serve as your vessel. We thank you and we love you and we sit expecting you, Lord. So we praise you and we give you all the thanks and all the glory. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When my brother and I were young, growing up in New York City, we didn't have a whole lot. But fortunately for my brother and me, we had a mother who loved us and worked hard to take care of us. I remember there were times when my mother worked three jobs to support us. During the summer when we were out of school, she would leave in the morning before we got out of bread and come home after her first shift to cook us breakfast. After her second shift, she would again stop home to make sure we had everything we needed, had eaten lunch, and hadn't caused significant damage to the apartment. And then she would come home exhausted after the third shift to tell us that she loved us as we sat together on her bed at night talking about the day. In Little League, when I was sitting on the bench as the youngest member of the team, my mother stood in the stands and yelled for the coach to put me in. When the team lost, she blamed my absence as a determining factor for the outcome of the game. In high school, when I was playing shortstop for my baseball team, I remember seeing my mother in the stands again, yelling at me in Spanish to avoid the high ones, swing at the pitch, and run hard. If I remember correctly, those were the games I played significantly better, and sometimes the games that we won. My mother has taught my brother and I a lot. She taught my brother how to shave. She has taught me how to cook my favorite meals. But more importantly, she has taught me how to love. For she did not love half-heartedly, but loved us sacrificially with all that she was or is. And in many respects, my mother's love has provided a very significant lesson on the kind of love that our God is worthy of. Sometimes when we think of love, we might not think too quickly on the kind of love that God deserves. In fact, just as we may at times take our mothers for granted, there might be the chance that we take God and His kindness towards us for granted. We think of God on Sundays and might honor Him for a couple of hours, but we fail to honor Him with our lives for the rest of the week. This leads, then, to a question I would like to answer this morning. 
How should we love God? What should be our response to Jesus? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, we find a story that answers this question for us. Today, I would like to recount this event from Jesus' life that teaches us how we should love God. The story is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. The Gospel of Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. As we examine this passage, we find Jesus early in his ministry. Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee for some time, teaching his disciples and healing people in the community. During this time, there have been many who begin to wonder who Jesus is. One such inquirer is a Pharisee by the name of Simon. During this time, Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who were well-versed in Jewish law. They were men of respect. If righteousness were measured by the number of Jewish laws kept, these men would be considered blameless. In the Gospels, we find that they often came in contact with Jesus and questioned his ministry practices. At times, they were appalled, disappointed, and often vengefully angry at Jesus. Yet Simon is none of these. He is simply curious. He wanted to know what Jesus was, was talking about. He had heard and had seen Jesus teach in the region and was interested in getting to know him. Some had already called Jesus a prophet, and Simon wanted to know what this interesting teacher was about. So when he had the chance, he invited Jesus to come to his home for a meal. Follow along as I begin to read in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, in order for you and I to understand the nature of this meal, we have to imagine ourselves as guests in, in this Pharisee's house. You and I would have entered Simon's house as guests. We would have been greeted into an open room. The doors would have been left open so that others who were uninvited could stand by the doorway and listen as the invited guests would instruct everyone else. In today's culture, this may have felt like a small banquet with Jesus serving as the honored guest. Jesus had been gaining popularity as a teacher, and we would have expected a good discourse with our meal. The table itself would have been set in the middle of the room. And unlike what we are used to in our culture, guests would not be seated in chairs, but would lie on their side with their feet behind them. Instead of sitting at the table, we would have been reclining or lying down at the table. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's home and took his place at the table. And the evening began just as Simon had expected. All the guests were accounted for and the meal which had been prepared was before them. But something happened during the meal that Simon could not have planned for. Look what Luke writes, beginning in verse 37. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Imagine the scene. Jesus is eating and conversing with those at the table when an uninvited woman comes toward the table in which Jesus is reclining. And she is not an ordinary woman, a woman whom Simon forgot to invite. She's a woman of the city, a sinner. This woman had built up a reputation because of her immorality. Perhaps she was an adulterer or a prostitute, a woman who had been around the block. Surely she was someone who was not fit to approach this table of distinguished gentlemen. Look at what she does. She kneels at the feet of Jesus with an expensive perfume. But before she can honor him by anointing his feet, she begins to cry. She was so overwhelmed by the opportunity to honor Jesus that she breaks down. She starts weeping at his feet. The tears are like rain showers coming down her face as they soak the feet of Jesus. So she bends her head forward and wipes his feet with her hair. Remember, this was the first century. Jesus came in wearing the same pair of sandals he had worn all throughout Galilee. His feet were blackened with dirt. And this woman is so captivated by Jesus that she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Then she bends closer to his feet and kisses them. She opens the bottle of expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. There was nothing more this woman could have done to express deeper admiration for Jesus. But keep in mind, this was a public and special feast. This woman was not supposed to be here. She was supposed to be sitting at the wall with the rest of the uninvited guests. As this is happening, Simon is watching. He wanted to get to know this man. He wanted to understand what all of Galilee was buzzing about. As far as he was concerned, he knew all he needed to know about Jesus now. For this man could never be a prophet if he allowed such a demonstration. For if he were a prophet, he would have been horrified by this offensive display of affection from this adulterous woman. She was unclean. A real prophet would have known what the rest of the community already knew. And a real prophet would never allow such a woman to touch him. But here's the irony. Here's the twist in the story. Jesus was more than a prophet. Not only did he know this woman and the actions that led to her reputation, but he also knew what Simon was thinking. 
Jesus answers Simon's doubt by demonstrating his knowledge of the situation through a parable. Jesus frequently taught in parables. Parables are short contemporary illustrations to explain truth. And it is a simple parable that Jesus tells. It is a story of a wealthy man in the business of lending money. Unsurprisingly, there comes a time when two individuals fall in debt to this money lender. The first individual is in a great amount of debt, for he owes $80,000. The second individual is also in debt, but, low, but owes a substantially lower debt of $8,000. Many of us here today have felt the pressures of debt. It can be unbearable. Every dollar earned seems to go towards paying this insurmountable debt. And I'm sure this is what these two individuals in the story felt like. Now, in regards to this story, there is a difference in the way Jesus is telling it. For in this story, the moneylender is unlike most moneylenders we might know. In Jesus' story, this moneylender is a gracious man. And upon seeing that these two who are in debt to him cannot pay, he forgives them their debt. And after telling this story, Jesus turns to Simon and asks, Now which one of them do you think will love him more? They were both in debt to the man, and they both have had their debt forgiven, but which one will love the moneylender more? It's a simple question when you think about it. It's even more simple when you do the math. $80,000 is a lot of money. $8,000 is also a lot of money, but it is not as much as $80,000. You see, the one who will love this money lender more is the one who has been forgiven more. So Simon answers Jesus and says, Well, the one, I suppose, who was canceled, for whom the cancel for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Simon is right. The larger the debt forgiven, the larger the gratitude and love. See, it's quite simple. Since the one who has been forgiven the greatest debt, since that person has been forgiven more, that person should love more. So Jesus turns to Simon and says, You're right. Now, had this story simply been a lesson on economics, it would have provided an entertaining icebreaker for an already tense feast. It would have been a sort of let's move on kind of moment. But that was not Jesus' intention. That was not the purpose behind Jesus telling this parable. Jesus' parable was meant to make a striking point about honor and love, about this woman and Simon. Simon had looked at this woman and judged her according to her reputation. For him, she was a disgrace, a woman of ill repute. But Jesus turns to her and says to Simon, and says to Simon, she has been far more dignified than you. 
for she, an uninvited guest, was far more courteous than he, the host. When Jesus entered Simon's home as an honored guest, he was hardly received as such. Sure, he was seated at the center of the table and was addressed as teacher, but that was the limit of the honor bestowed on him. Jesus reminds Simon of this by comparing his lack of hospitality with the woman's greater love. When Jesus entered his home, Simon did not provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. But the woman did far more by washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping them with her hair. When Jesus entered the home, entered his home, Simon did not greet Jesus with a kiss. But the woman had done far more by kissing the feet of Jesus from the moment he had arrived. And when Jesus entered his home, Simon did not present him with oil to anoint his head, even though oil was inexpensive and would have been a great sign of respect. But the woman had done far more by taking an expensive perfume and anointing the feet of Jesus, demonstrating her deeper reverence and love for Jesus. Now, if it weren't enough that Jesus had condemned his hosts in front of all of his household, Jesus makes an even bolder claim. Look what the text says in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, rather, I'm sorry, verse 48, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. 49, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus makes a bold statement here. Jesus says to this woman who has been looked down upon and judged, he says to her, your sins have actually been forgiven. And her love for Jesus was the response for this forgiveness. What does Jesus mean by he who is forgiven little loves little? Was Jesus implying that Simon had been forgiven by God, but had received a lesser quantity of God's forgiveness? Does God forgive based on percentages? That's not what Jesus is saying. God offers great forgiveness to all of us. God offers to forgive all of our sins through the work of Jesus. Jesus' point is that those who receive it and recognize all that has been forgiven respond in love. This is the way the woman responded. She recognized her need for forgiveness and she responded by loving and honoring Jesus. On the other hand, when Jesus refers to the one who has been forgiven little, he is referring to the person who considers himself so righteous that he does not consider his deep need for God's salvation. He does not understand all that he is in need to be forgiven for, so he lacks the depth of love for God. Simon thought, himself, thought of himself as a righteous man. 
a man who observed Jewish law. I am sure Simon did not consider himself perfect, but he did consider himself better off than the sinful woman. And in doing so, he did not fully understand his own deep need for forgiveness. Yet Jesus tells him that this woman, whom he had considered to be more guilty, was actually better off. She was better off because she realized the gravity of her sin. Since Simon was not aware of his need for Jesus, he did not love him the way that she did. Jesus' claim of forgiveness is also bold because he is claiming to be God. Notice the question asked by the other guests. Who then is this who even forgives sins? During the entire exchange, the other guests had been silent, simply observing the exchanges between Jesus, this woman, and Simon. But after Jesus' statement of forgiveness, they asked themselves, who then is this that even forgives sins? And the answer, of course, is that Jesus is God. Jesus speaks to this woman as if he has the authority to forgive sins. And since it is only God who can forgive sins, Jesus is making a statement about himself. Think about Jesus' parable. If the woman is the individual who owes $80,000 and Simon is the one who owes $8,000, who is the one to whom they owe the debt? It is God. It is God alone who can cancel these debts. And if it is God alone who can declare us free from the payment of our sins, then Jesus is saying that he is God. So what's the point of this story? What's the significance of Jesus' encounter with Simon and the woman who anoints him? The story provides us a proper understanding for how we respond to Jesus. It answers the question that we began with, how should we love God? The woman recognized that she was in severe need of forgiveness. She recognized that she had a debt that she was unable to pay. The reality is that you and I also have a severe need for forgiveness. We have also piled up our debts and are unable to satisfy all that we owe. But like the moneylender, God is gracious and has canceled our debts by providing Jesus Christ for all of our sins. Now, if you have accepted this truth, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are in right standing with God. And there is only one way we ought to respond to such grace. And that is to love God with all that we are. Since God has forgiven us for all that we were, we ought to love God with all that we are. Think about that. Since God has forgiven us for all that we were, we ought to love God with all that we are. God has forgiven us for all that we were. Individuals opposed to God, in debt up to our necks, with no way to pay off His wrath. So in response to this grace, we ought to love God with all that we are. 
The woman who anointed Jesus honored him because she was overwhelmed by his grace. She was humbled to know that she could pay tribute to her Savior. She did not allow a love for anything else to interfere with her love for God. She praised God and demonstrated her gratitude for her forgiveness. She was reminded that she was far away from God, but he brought her near to himself through Jesus Christ. She did not allow cultural norms to keep her from praising God. She was focused on praising Jesus. It didn't matter to her what others thought of her because she knew what God thought of her. It didn't matter what others saw in her because she knew what God saw in her, the righteousness of Christ. What does it mean for you and I to love God with all that we are? Well, it means several things. It means that we do not allow a love for anything else to interfere with our love for God. There are plenty of things that compete for our affections and time. But God has to be our first love. Not our jobs, our families, or even ourselves, but God must always be our first priority. Have you examined your life recently to see if something else has stepped in to steal away your affections? How do you spend your time? Many of us here today spend hours socializing or busying ourselves with such trivial things, yet we struggle to find the time to reflect on our God. Why do we find it so difficult to read the scriptures? Why do we find it so difficult to have a consistent prayer life? Might it be because we have misplaced our love for God? Loving God with all that we are means that no other love comes before our love for God. When we love God with all that we are, everything else falls into place. We don't live for the job, we live for God. We don't live to make our children happy, we live to encourage our children to honor God. We don't live to satisfy ourselves, we live to glorify God. When we live to glorify God, everything we do becomes an act of worship to Him. Every meal we prepare, Every job we do and every conversation we have is done for the glory of God. God is too magnificent to share his glory with anyone, least of all you and me. God is worthy in a and as a response we ought to love him as so. Loving God with all that we are means that we give sacrificially to God and put our own comfort and desires aside. This woman used something that was precious, the expensive perfume, to anoint Jesus. Instead of using the treasure for herself, she used it to honor her Savior. What treasures have you stored up for yourself? Loving Jesus with all that we are means that we are willing to submit our possessions to his plans, realizing that nothing we own is ours. It has been entrusted to us by God. And our responsibility is to be good stewards of what we have been entrusted with. Just as the woman honored and worshipped Christ in a public setting, 
without concern for what her peers thought of her. We should make choices to honor God with all that we do, even if it means stepping outside of our comfort zones or going against the grain. It may be uncomfortable to share your faith at school or at work with those who do not know Christ. They may not listen. They may mock. But His love and forgiveness are too great for us to be held back by fear or concern of what others may think of us. Loving God with all that we are means that we understand how great His grace is for us and we share it with those around us. What has God been doing in your life lately? What is your God sighting? Has He encouraged you? Has He been teaching you? Has He been admonishing you? Then share it with someone else. God has blessed you with something and He wants you to share with others so that they also may be able to praise Him. Finally, loving God with all that we are means that we praise Him continually. Let us never come to a point where we feel we have thanked Him or praised Him enough. The Bible clearly teaches that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation but it is a free gift from God. Just as the woman in this story did not earn her forgiveness by her acts of adoration, neither have we. Rather, when, when we are saved, we should, we should never come to a point where we are so comfortable with our salvation that the words we sing in church just roll off of our lips or become meaningless repetition. We are singing praises to God. And it should be an act of worship to Him. God has done an incredible act on our behalf. God has made us His. He has called us to Himself. And it is such a wonderful thing that we have been united with Him, that we have been called to Him and have been called His. May we never forget that wonderful truth. May it never become an old and tired truth that we simply think of on the fly. Songwriter and singer Jimmy Needham has written a song that reminds us of this wonderful fact. Would you listen as I read these words that he has written to God? When my heart was embittered and pierced within, when I found myself senseless and ignorant, you had taken hold of my right hand and have made me continually yours. I am continually yours. I am yours. I am yours. Like the sparrow in your hand, like the lilies of the land, I am yours. My crime and guilt my dark and shame, my finger-pointing lies and blames are covered by your crimson stains, and I am continually yours. Yes, I am continually yours. No one else do I desire. You have set my heart on fire, and I am yours. My flesh, 
my heart may fail within, riddled with scars of former sin. Nevertheless, I will rise again, for I am continually yours. Yes, I am continually yours. May we never forget his grace, for when we were his enemies, he brought us to himself, forgave us, and made us his. And we too can sing to God, saying, I am yours, I am continually yours. Friends, since God has forgiven us for all that we were, we ought to love God with all that we are. Let's pray. Father, we give you so much thanks. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing in our lives. Lord, you are such a gracious God, and we give you praise and thanks. Lord, may we live in response to what you have already done for us. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.